I'm going to read our passage this morning. This comes from 2 Corinthians 5. It's in your bulletin. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Starting in verse 16. From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know Him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making His appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Gordon. Well, as as Gordon said, I am A.K. Andrew King, um, and I am the pastor of Youth and Family Ministries here at Hope. And it is a gift to stand before you on this day. It, is, uh, it has been a heavy week. Uh, I think uh, so much of my prayer as I, as I was preparing was that uh, this would be a reminder of the good news of the gospel. That, as Gordon was saying, I almost didn't want to get up here, just let him preach. Uh, but it's our only hope. Um, and I, I was going to say, Greg, thanks your tears. I was like, okay, I'm not going to be the only guy to cry up here uh, today. Um, but uh, that was beautiful. Thank you, Greg. Um, so we are right in the middle of our, our sermon series on Kelly Capick's book, You're Only Human. Um, and this book for me, it, it's been a gift. I think specifically in this life stage that that we're in with young kids of uh, my limitations, our limitations as, as parents looks so different uh, than it did pre-kids. But uh, so much of what Kelly Capick's book it has done for me is it's just reminded me uh, of how God created me with limitations. And he created, created me to be uh, dependent on him and dependent on others. And that's so much of what he's doing. He's Uh, reminding us that we are created in God's image um, and that we were created to be uh, dependent on him. And uh, God uniquely created me and each of us in this room with gifts uh, to serve him. Um, And like I said, he created us to be dependent on him. And the chapter that we're, we're focusing on today is all about identity. The question, um, each title has a, has a question. And this week's chapter was titled, Is Our Identity Self-Generated? So what Capic is doing, he's, he's essentially asking this question, um, how do I find meaning and purpose? Um, and see, when we're left to ourselves to figure that out alone in isolation, um, we're left trying to be good enough uh, for the love and affection of others, maybe even Uh, trying to be good enough to earn the love and affection of God. And so while, uh, like, we may be able to produce something in us, some kind of talent to make ourselves lovable, eventually uh, that's going to fail. 
it's not sustainable long-term. Uh, one of my favorite TV shows throughout the past few years, and I'm sure many in this room would agree, uh, is Ted Lasso. Um, and I, I think one of the reasons why so many of us were drawn to that show is because it is a show about people and who they are. And in, in so many ways, it like, gets to the core of humanity. Um, and one of my one of my favorite characters is uh, the aging, angry soccer player, Roy Kent. And right towards the end of the season, uh, Ted Lasso, the head coach, is trying to decide if he's going to end up benching Roy for being a little bit slower than he used to be, even though in so many ways he's like the heart of the team. So Coach Lasso has this conversation with him, and Roy Kent just, in, in Roy Kent fashion, is very mad. Um, if you know the show, um, he is known for not using great language that I can't say from up front. Um, but in this really, really sweet moment, uh, Keely, his girlfriend at the time, has, has him sit down in his like, anger and rage as he's, as he's essentially processing, like, who am I? I've always been the best soccer player on every team. And now that I'm aging, I'm not as fast as I used to be. Who am I if I'm not that guy? And I love what Keely does. He has, she has his, uh, his sweet six-year-old niece sit down. Uh, her name's Phoebe. And he, uh, she has her close her eyes and describe her uncle. And she sits down and she says in her, in her sweet little British accent, she says, well, he's my uncle. His beard is scratchy. He buys me ice cream. He swears a lot. He's really funny. And it's so, sorry. I don't, yeah, as I said, I knew I, I knew I would get emotional at some point today. Um, but she just says, and I love him. And, and it, there's this moment where, like, it seems as though Roy Kent is like, his heart softens. And, and he, like, kind of hurt it. But he immediately in more colorful language than I can use, he says, who cares what she has to say, she's six. Which I, I think that's such this relatable scene of all of us having this desire to be loved the way that Phoebe loves her Uncle Roy. But yet we also push against that and we feel the need to muster up in ourselves something that will make us lovable, likable. And so much of what I'm, what I'm even trying to do this morning, and, and as I was even thinking about our own identity, is this invitation to see ourselves the way that God does. Because if we think about it, and I hope as we go through this, you'll see that, that the root and core of our identity is grounded in a loving Father. So it, it, one of the things that, that Kelly Capet gets at, he's, it's pretty philosophical, but like if you don't have the book, I really do encourage you to read it. It's, it has been really powerful, but he talks a lot about philosophy in this one and just how we, we view ourselves. And he explains how in the Western culture, we're encouraged to find our own identity by isolating ourselves from our own context. And so we're kind of, think about it as we're kind of left looking within to find who we are, and we attempt to create our own meaning and significance. And I think uh, Kapik is dead on when he says that because of this, we, leave, we live in a tiresome world um, that's full of self-accusation and self-justification. You see where that, 
where it leads us is we feel that condemnation, but then we're trying to muster up uh, something inside of to, something inside us to justify who we are. And so looking at our passage uh, for this morning, just the, the first verse where it says, for now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. And see what, what Paul is doing there is he's even saying, hey, we, you're no longer to understand who you are by looking just like within. You're supposed to look outside of yourself. You're, you can't look, another translation, instead of world, it says flesh. And so we're not left just with this flesh to define who we are. There's something outside of ourselves that we can look to. See, the, first, the, the source of our identity is first and foremost rooted and grounded in our creator God. And much of what we've been referencing as we've been going through this book is the first three chapters of Genesis. In so many ways, those first three chapters give us this roadmap of who we are and who we were created to be. The first two chapters, we see that we were created with, with dignity. And then we see in chapter three that sin enters the world and just invokes chaos on the world and inside us. In our very, uh, our tendency, what we're prone to do because of that, just like Adam and Eve, is we're prone to hide. We're prone to guilt and shame. And uh, one of my favorite authors, who was our men's retreat speaker, he wrote this, with, which I think really gets at the frustration that we feel um, from the fall and the way it distorts our lives and our thinking Um, especially when we're faced with our limitations. He writes this, My limitations frustrate me. From an early age, I didn't quite like myself. I was too skinny, my ears were big, and at bedtime I tried to tape them back, in fact hoping they'd find their way into a more normal position. It didn't work. Sometime around middle school, we wake up like Adam and Eve in the garden to our limitations. We begin comparing. We take notice of our awkward bodies. We feel the sting of shame, and perhaps we even hear the whisper of the serpent, our budding false self saying, we can, re-ban- we can rebrand, different clothes, a new attitude, cooler friends. We learn at an early age to despise the beauty of our dusty humanity, our creatureliness, our limitations. And see what we do when we find this disgust with ourselves Um, We look to something to give us worth and value. We feel the need to create our identity and this image, uh, like I've been saying, to be loved and accepted. And I I think this is acutely seen in in Instagram or any kind of social media site where we can curate uh, this image that we want people to, to see of ourselves And we can, I mean, some do air out their dirty laundry on that, but most of us probably try to create this image so that we we seem more likable and lovable and we put this like best um, picture of ourselves, uh, this image that we try to create. Um, And as I was thinking, I think even just asking some good diagnostic questions can be helpful. I think asking ourselves the question, where am I hiding? Where are my struggles? Where am I trying to make my life work right now? Where am I looking for my worth and value? 
I know for me, where I, I look to oftentimes is, um, is my own performance and how I'm received by other people. At a young age, some of you maybe have heard some of my story before, but I was told that I, that I couldn't achieve because I found out at an early age that I was dyslexic and um, I was told that I would never graduate high school. And so that's always in the back of my head. And, and what I, my response to that has been, uh, I don't like, I don't think I'm trying to strive for perfection, but what I'm doing is I'm just saying, hey, I don't, I don't want to fail. That's how I enter. But uh, the reality of what that turns into is I, I, even if something goes well, I'll pick myself apart because there's always something that could have been done better. So when I'm on the other side of, of something where I've, I've focused a lot of attention and energy into, uh, I can be critical of myself, or if I get some kind of criticism or even assume that someone is being critical of me, I can go into this spiral, and then it pushes me to kind of look inward and try harder next time to prevent that failure from happening. Um, and then what happens if I do fail again or I experience that criticism, it, it, that cycle just starts over. And do you see how that process, where that leaves us? Because I know where it leaves me. It, it leaves me really exhausted and angry at myself and others that are critical of me. Um, and then what I want to do, my tendency is to, to disengage, to retreat, and to pull away. And can you relate to, to any of that? What is shaping your own identity and the way you understand yourself? Do you look to work, maybe school if you're a student? Um, do, you, do you try to measure how you're doing? Maybe you look to a hobby. Um, do you look to being a, a parent and, and the way your kids are responding to you? Do you look to being a, a good son or a good daughter? I think in some way we're, we're all looking to something. And the reality of each of those things is they are, they, they're really, really good. But what happens is when we look to those things for our meaning and purpose, um, they distort our view of ourselves. Because the reality is, how do you gauge how you're doing in those areas? Because there's always going to be someone or, or seem like someone is doing better than you. And that comparison game is just this, this spiral that can happen. And think about it, if, if one of those things is, uh, if you do fail in one of those areas or, or something is stripped away from you, it, just like Roy Kent is, is saying, who am I if I don't have this? Because I know it, it can show up in even uh, small ways for me with my three-year-old son. If I lose my temper at him, I'm no longer that patient, kind father that I, that I long to be. And it can happen in really big ways, too, with like a sports injury or a job loss or something like that. And then we're left kind of saying, well, who, who am I if I don't have that? I love how Capic explains it this way. He says, the Christian faith always understands the person as finite and necessarily in connection with God, with other persons, with the creation at large and within the person. Because sin distorts both our internal world and external relations, restoration requires that we understand connectivity and view ourselves as objects of God's love and delight. And that's, this is the shift right here. Because when we understand ourselves in light of God's love and affection and the fact that he delights in us, we can rest in him. 
because we are known, loved, and liked by him. We are his. We are freed from the need to prove our worth because we are enough in him. And the reality of our identity in God means that we are these finite dependent creatures. And what that means is that we can show up. We say this a lot at Hope, that we can show up and work with a relaxed heart. And as we move forward through the passage, I'm going to draw our attention back to it. We are God's. We get to say that we are his because of the reconciling work that Jesus has done. Look with me at these verses, starting in 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. This is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. See, what this means is that without Jesus, we are at odds with God. We do not have a relationship with him. We cannot have a relationship with him without Jesus. Yet with Jesus, we have a restored and redeemed relationship with God the Father. As I was tra- thinking of like how to illustrate this, um, the, the movie Home Alone came to mind. Um, just this idea of what it looks like to not be reconciled. It, it means that we are kicked outside of the family, kind of watching from afar. And one of my favorite uh, scenes in that movie is when old man Marley and Kevin are sitting in the church together. And it's kind of this like, underlying story throughout all, all of whom alone. And, but when we are not reconciled to God, we are like old man Marley watching his granddaughter from afar. Not able to engage. Just at, at a distance. And I, I think that's such this, this image of who we are without Jesus. Wanting, longing to come near. And maybe it doesn't play out for you in your relationship with God, but it plays out in some way, shape, or form with how we want to be uh, viewed and understood by others. And see, the beauty of the gospel is there's this great exchange that happens so our relationship with God is redeemed and restored. And this is so clearly uh, explained by, in Paul's words where he says in verse 21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a verse that so concisely explains the beauty and the reality of the gospel. And see, because Jesus became sin for us, we can have a relationship with God. We can approach God, and instead of being fearful of rejection, we are embraced. Just like Marley and his family at the end of Home Alone when he embraces his granddaughter and son. Um, and I love, I love the way um, Scott Sauls explains this in his book, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen. It's this reality of, of who we are in light of what Christ has done for us and how we can up, approach God. It says, God's answer to our sin is not condemnation, but grace. His answer to our shame is not rejection, but tenderness. His answer to our repeat failures is not last straw cancellation, but never-ending embrace. His answer to our slowness to listen is not disgusted retreat, but pursuing kindness. 
His answer to the grossest things about us is not to shout us down and shut us out, but to quiet us with his love. You see, going back to the way I even wanted us to kind of view our identity is through the eyes of how God sees us. I think so much of that is just seen in our three-year-old son and how he unashamedly comes to me no matter what. When he's hurting, no matter what happens, he cries out, and that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to, that's in a lot of ways how we're called to see ourselves. One other thing that I I do want to draw out about this passage is this was a, this is a letter that was written to a group of people to the, the church of Corinth. And, and so when Paul is explaining this reconciling work of Jesus, he's saying that if anyone is in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation. And again, I, I think this pushes against our culture that tells us we are to define ourselves in isolation, looking within. Because what this says is we're not left to ourselves to figure it all out. We are part of a community, and in community, we are reminded who we are, and we get to remind others who they are. And yes, this isn't the primary source, but it's the way God created us to be dependent on Him, first and foremost as God the Father, but also to be dependent on others in community. Listen to how Capek explains it. He says, the liberated self is always necessarily a self in relation. Because we have our being in relation and not apart from it, knowing oneself rightly can only occur in the context of being known, being in relationship, of being loved. And so what that's getting at is it's saying, hey, you can't know yourself outside of relationship. You can't truly know who you are um, in isolation. It's only through relationship with God the Father and through the relationship with others that you can know and understand who you are and who God is. Um, and I read about this really, really sweet friendship this past week of um, these two guys that they actually play on the, um, the Hold the Lamb of God concert, if you're familiar with Andrew Peterson. Um, their names are Andy Gellahorn and Gabe Scott, and they became friends before they started doing that, um, playing the Behold the Lamb of God concert. But they had this friendship where they would play together each year and they would always have these great conversations and be like, man, I, I wish we could like connect. And you, you know, when you have those people that you connect with and you're like, yeah, we, we should do that. And then a year come, goes by just because life is busy. Um, but during one of these meetings, they, they discovered that one had moved and they only lived roughly a, like a mile and a half apart from each other. And so they came up with this creative idea of, hey, for us to, to stay connected and for us, our friendship to grow, what I want us to do is once a week, I want us to meet in the middle uh, between our two houses. There was a park right there, and they would give each other a high five. And so the first time they did this, they kind of were awkward, and they didn't really know what to do, and they just stuck around and talked for three hours. And granted, they, they weren't able to do that every time, but what it turned into was this routine that they looked forward to each week where they would text each other. They'd meet in the middle, give each other a high five. Sometimes it would just be the high five. Other times they would stick around and shoot hoops for a little while. And other times they would stick around and talk for a little bit longer, but it was this really, really sweet thing that started to blossom. And they, they even talked about how maybe if we do this for 10 years, we'll end up on CBS Sunday Morning, their, their wife's favorite show. And that's, that's the very thing that happened, but partly because of um, something tragic that happened. One of the guys, um, after he gave his friend a high five, he went on to work and he had this episode where he had to be hospitalized. And they found out that he had 
this really bad infection that caused swelling on the brain. And because of that, he, he lost his memory. And so uh, one of the friend, the friend that's not sick, he ends up showing up in the hospital and, and telling his friend's wife, he's like, hey, I'm going to take the night shift. And the, the sweet thing that happened was he, he told his friend he, that had lost his memory, he was like, hey, his friend recognized him but he didn't know the friendship. He didn't know about the high five, the thing that, that they had been doing. But the friend that, that had his, his full memory, that, that had his wits about him, he said, hey, I know this isn't going to make sense, but when you use the bathroom, when you get up in the middle of the night, what I want you to do is I want you to, to give me a high five. And so over the years, they had developed this like clap, snap, high five thing that they did. And, and sure enough, what happened when he went to give him the high five, even though his memory was lost, he did that routine. He did the clap, snap, high five. And um, what I love about that is this, this sweet story of these two friends being in this really, really difficult place. And this friendship is what helped the one guy recall who he was and remember who he was. Gabe, the guy that was sick, he said, I'm still me, but I can't define me in my memories. And he's relying so much of his, on that friendship that he had and the stories that his friend can, can stir up in him to, to remind him who he is. And in the interview that was on CBS Sunday morning, he's um, in Fighting Back Here, Tears, he says, it's really special to have something that's this consistent in my life that means so much. And through this simple childlike routine, their friendship deepened. And during one of the darkest moments of their friendship, um, it's the very thing that, that anchored him, that helped him remember who he was. There's so much I love about that story, but what it, what it stirred up in me um, was I think this is true for us. Um, I think we can see the same reality as we show up uh, to church week after week, or when we go to our community group week after week, it can almost feel like, this is kind of silly. Why am I doing this week after week? But over time, these, these simple, this routine, uh, it's reminding us who we are. And when things are difficult, we have something that we're anchored to. It's something that's so much bigger than ourselves. And, and then even if we're not the ones that are going through the difficulty, the hardship, we get to remind people who they are and what they're anchored to. Which brings me to my, my last point. Um, through our identity being rooted and grounded in God as Father, us being a new creation, a part of, uh, a part of that is being in community um, and God reconciling us. We, we are to be people of reconciliation. Just as verse 20 says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now through us being reconciled, we are invited to be ambassadors, ambassadors of reconciliation. And what this means is that we get to remind each other the reality of what it means that we are reconciled to God, that we have a restored and redeemed relationship with him. And we get to invite other people into that reconciliation, reminding them that they are not alone or left to their own efforts to create their own meaning and significance.
One of the passages that I, that I continue to, to go to that I couldn't shake this week is one of, one of my favorite passages of all time. I think just even the, some of the darkness that, that was experienced with our church body is Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. I think this gives us a picture from the Old Testament of what it looks like to, to move forward knowing that we are reconciled to God. It says, now this is what the Lord says, the one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. What beautiful truth. See, Isaiah is giving God's people this word while they're in exile. They're in a time where they feel abandoned and alone in a foreign land. And what the Lord reminds his people is that he created them. He formed them. And because of that, they do not have to be afraid. Even in the midst of chaos they are experiencing, God is reminding who he is, who they are, and whose they are. While they have been unfaithful, and we see that, that's this underlying thread throughout the Old Testament, God has continued and remains faithful. He claims them as his. He has redeemed them, and because of this, they can move forward in confidence, knowing that as they walk through the tumultuous waters, they are not overwhelmed. And when they walk through the fire, they will not be burned. What God does here is he reminds the people who he is and he reminds the people who they are in light of being God's chosen people. They have a security that cannot be shaken. They have a security that cannot be found outside, inside themselves. It can only be found in him. And they have a security that doesn't need to be added to to be made more secure. And because of that, they are free to move forward with confidence and not be fearful. And that's the very thing that Paul is explaining to the people of Corinth. And the same is true for us today. Listen to these words again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. And that is the gift that we get to reflect on throughout this Christmas season, that we are reconciled to God the Father. Which I think it's so fitting that this is the, the Sunday that we light the joy candle because what that leads to when we understand who we are in light of Christ, the fact that we are new creations, and realize that God is with us, it leads to joy. Let me pray for us. Father, would you help us uh, to see ourselves the way that you see us? And would that be um, the core of how we see ourselves, the way we make sense of who we are and the way we make sense of the world around us? And Father, I pray that as those truths and reality sink in, that we could be a community, a body that, that is defined by your reconciled work and that we could move forward without fear, and that we could um, move forward with, jo with joy um, despite um, our surroundings, um, with things feeling dark around us. 
And I pray that your light would break through. And pray that that would become more real today. And we pray this in your name. Amen.